Turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah 31. If you were with us in Sunday school, uh, I was stunned to hear that there is no Jeremiah in one of the groups there that David is teaching in Africa. We are indeed blessed to have this passage before us. Jeremiah chapter 31 I'll read verses 7 to 14. This is what the Lord says. Sing with joy for Jacob. Shout for the greatest of the nations. Make your praises be heard and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. See, I bring them from the land of the north and gather them from the ends of the earth. Among them will be the blind and the lame, expectant mothers and women in labor. A great throng will return. They will come with weeping. They will pray as I bring them back. I will lead them beside streams of water on a level path where they will not stumble. Because I am Israel's father. And Ephraim is my firstborn son. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations. Proclaim it in distant coastlands. He who scattered Israel will gather them and watch over his flock like a shepherd. For the Lord will ransom Jacob and redeem them from the hand of those stronger than they. They will come and shout for joy on the heights of Zion. They will rejoice in the bounty of the Lord, the grain, the new wine, and the oil, the young of the flocks and herds. They will be like a well-watered garden, and they will sorrow no more. Then maidens will dance and be glad, young men and old as well. I will turn their mourning into gladness. I will give them comfort and joy instead of sorrow. I will satisfy the priest with abundance, and my people will be filled with my bounty, declares the Lord. Let's hear the word of the Lord. I want to give you an introduction in three points today, and... um, the introduction, I just want to direct your attention to the last verse, which is the reason why uh, I would like to bring the psalm before your, uh, your mind's eye this morning. The psalmist says at the end of this difficult experience that he had where his feet almost slipped, he says, but for me, it is good to be near God I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. That last line, that I may tell of all your works. The psalmist, after all of this, had become someone who had something to tell. Are you someone who has something to tell about God? And he wasn't always like that. He had lost that ability. He had nothing to tell. And that can happen to all of us, as Stan said. He was a godly man, but 
he was almost taken down. I, I love those American phrases that uh, I don't hear until I come back here. He's almost taken down. <laughs> but it's true. Um, and we, we want to become those who know the goodness of the nearness of the Lord and have something to tell. This world and this country desperately needs people that are radiant with the goodness of God. What will happen to this country if there are none like that? None that have something to tell. So, let's... um, Let's look at what happened to the psalmist and what undoubtedly happens to us in some measure, maybe not as radically as him, but um, we have a message, thus saith the Lord to us in this psalm. We could entitle this psalm, The the Prodigal Psalmist, or How to Become a Savage Beast Toward God and Yet Come Back. Um. So we will look at it in terms of first the the downward fall, and then the turning point, and then the radiant witness. Okay? That will be simple simple enough for us, and we can grasp what God would have us to know in this psalm. Well, first of all, the downward fall. Verse 1, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. That simply means to true believe, the, the true believers in Israel. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. And he's not just talking about a little trip. He's talking about apostasy. Here is a man who was a godly man and he says, I almost fell away from the living God. And he gives us the reason. He says, because I was envious of the arrogant. And really, to tell you the truth, in a sense, it's not because he was envious, but because he lost his sight and understanding of the goodness of God. Every time, dear people, that you slip and that you decline spiritually, there's one thing that is sure. It is that you have lost thought, you have lost that grip of faith and confidence that God is good to Israel. You, the spiritual Israel, to God's people. That He is good to you. From the tree in Eden to the tree at Calvary, this has been the issue. What did Satan try to do to to Eve? To convince her that God was not good. There's something God is depriving you of. This tree has the key to knowledge and God does not want you to have it. Now Satan didn't mind that Eve knew that God had made the tree and made the whole garden and that if she became like, uh, she ate from the tree, she would become like God. He didn't mind her thinking that God was supreme and powerful and great. He just wanted her to think that God was not good. And this is the temptation For without faith it is impossible to please Him. Those who come to God must know that He is and that He is the rewarder of those who seek Him. You must know that He is and that He is good, eternally, innately good. He is love and light. 
as you saw in Jeremiah, that it is His nature to bless. To bless and to bless. For that is what He is and who He is. He is full of grace and truth when He steps upon the scene as a man. He is full of grace. And we saw His glory full of grace. But you see, our feet can slip. And we want to understand how that happens and how we can turn around from that, don't we? Well, the downfall has four steps to it, or four, excuse me, four, four aspects to it that we need to understand. First of all, the reason for the fall. And I'm going to give you the four, the four uh, aspects so that you can understand them. Some people like to take notes, and we'll just talk about observation, obsession, outrage, and obstacle. First of all, observation. He says in verse 3, his steps almost slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw, observation, when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And here's what usually happens. You're going along living as a Christian, and then something comes into your purview in a powerful and great way that you had not seen before. Something of the evil of this world. The COVID years maybe brought evil into our view. It's always been there. Remember, God had to destroy the world once, didn't He? Evil is not new in this world. Desperate evil is not new. But at some point, something happens to you or around you when I saw. Now, for the psalmist, this was the wealthy, rich, we'll say the powerful and evil of his world. It wasn't just that they had more stuff than him. Okay? We're going to see that in this time, the rich were those who ruled. They controlled things. And he goes on to speak of how, how, uh, how they oppressed and how they kept down, and how they spoke against heaven, and how they took control. And in our country, uh, of France, and in this country, certainly we see the great are sometimes also the evil and the wicked, though God can also put godly people in power. But most often that is not the case. Anyway, there's this observation. But remember that if this is not your case, your feet can slip by seeing evil and fallenness in a different way. Maybe it's a health problem. Maybe it's something really bad, not good, has come into your life through health or to, through losing something materially or, or through a relationship, an awful relationship at work or in the family or something. But... The problem is that we come to the point of the psalmist and we start looking as he did at the evil, looking at them and, and seeing how they're prospering. And we say this, why, Lord, do you allow? Why did you allow? If you are good, if God is good, look, look around your country, look around your life, look around your family, your relationships, and... When our feet begin to slip, the first sign is we see 
evil and we say, why, Lord, if you are good? Or things like this. We can certainly identify with that, can't we? And we don't realize at first that we're even saying why, do we? It's, it's on an unconscious level at first, isn't it? Before it becomes uh, obvious to our own selves. But this is, this is the way that we often... There's, there's just a frustration with God. There's just something going on underneath that I'm not quite happy with what, the way God's governing life, my life, the world, the country. And I just wouldn't do it that way. Why, Lord? And that's the, that's the sign of our, our, sli- our slipping foot. But if you want to understand it, we have to go from the observation to the obsession. Now, I want you to notice something. The next thing that the psalmist does is he describes what he saw about the wicked, what he observed, what he analyzed. And he's not speaking from where he's at now. Okay, he's come back from that position and he sees them differently now. In fact, in, in verse 18, once he's turned around, he says, you set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin. But he wasn't always seeing that. Now he's going to tell us what he saw when he was slipping and sliding. Because the second step of spiritual decline is usually obsession with evil. Obsession with something that's not good and that's, that's wrong in our world. Now look at it. And I'll just, I just want you to note that in these verses, in the fir- very first part of the psalm, from, uh, from verse uh, 3 or 4 on down to maybe about verse 15, um, God's mo- God is not mentioned, except in one verse, and that's to describe what other people are saying about God. Whereas in the last part of the psalm, when he turns around, in, verses, in the last 10 verses of the psalm, God is mentioned 17 times. 17 times. So here is the man with the slipping foot. And when we begin to concentrate on the evil of the world, one, one thing is sure, you are not concentrating on the goodness of God. It's slipping from your eye, from your view. You're not seeing something that's true and marvelous but you don't see it anymore. Now notice how obsessed he becomes. He says, For I was ignorant of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. I'm reading from the ESV. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. He knows about their bodies. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. He knows their vices. He says their pride is their necklace, and violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness, and their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff, he knows about their conversation, they scoff and speak with malice, loftily, they threaten oppression, they set their mouths against heaven, he knows about their ungodliness, their impiety, and their tongue struts through the earth, and he knows how people react to them. You know, when any, anyone is very sure of himself, what do people do? They follow them. And so it says here in verse 9, they set their mouths against the heavens, or perhaps in another verse, they, they, they lay hold of heaven. But there's, a, there's an arrogance here, whatever it means. And he says, therefore, 
His people turn back to them and find no fault in them. They're so sure of themselves. And that's what's happening in in our country today. But the thing I want you to notice is that the psalmist has become an expert in the wicked. He's obsessed with him. He's gone on the social media. He's gone on the best sources of information. And he knows everything they're doing. He spent hours on the internet checking into what they're really doing. And he knows it all. And he never thinks about God and His goodness anymore. He's just thinking, he's just obsessed with the wicked rich of the world. Have you ever seen anyone do that? I have seen Christians in the last few years more than ever falling into this precise trap. And I've seen them lose their joy as they're more and more looking at the evil of the world and less and less at the wonderful goodness of the God who has saved us, who has come and redeemed our souls and is taking us to glory. And they've lost their joy and they have nothing to tell. Isn't that amazing? How up to date the Scriptures are and speak right into our situation. Well, this was... His problem, and it was, uh, it was very painful. So we have the observation, we have the obsession, and then we have the outrage. Unfortunately, it doesn't stop there. It gets worse. Now he's in outrage. He complains. He complains about the character of the believer's life. What it's like to be a believer. So read with me. In, uh, in verse 12, sorry, 13. He says, All in vain have I kept my heart clean. We would say, he's saying that the Christian life, if I can put it that way, is a vain life. Why did I believe all that stuff? It leads to nothing. There's no, there's no reason for it. He says, All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been stricken. And when we get into this outrage, we always exaggerate. All day long? Come on. All day long? But we always exaggerate. But anyway, he says, all day long I have been stricken. And my version says, and rebuked every morning. Other versions say punished. But the idea is the divine chastisement of believers. He's saying, ah... You know, the wicked have got it easy. They don't have to keep any rules. They're not under fatherly chastisement. And look at me. Look at the form of my Christian life. Every day I have to deal with my sin. Because every day God deals with me in my sin. And, you know, he's not the only one who's come to that sort of outrage. If you read uh, in the life of Job, you find it a moment... At a moment in his life, he says this. Listen to this. It sounds very similar. He says, what is, he's talking to God and he says, What is man that you make so much of him and that you set your heart on him? Visit him every morning and test him every moment. You see the exaggeration there? How long will you not look away from me nor leave me alone till I swallow my spit? Outrage. And we can, we can come to that, to that position in which we've become totally jaded 
And we see the treasure of the saints as a big fat problem. Because you do know, don't you, that the chastisement of God is the treasure of the saints. For whom God loveth, he chastiseth. And he scourges every one, every son whom he receives. And that's the language of justification, of acceptance. He said, he's, Hebrews 12 goes on to say, it is, it is like sons, it is as sons that God is dealing with you. For what's the son who's not disciplined? You know, in the book of Revelation, we see these seven churches and they're about to go through this incredible catastrophe in, in, in the first century. And God, how does He save them from just falling apart during it? If you read those seven letters, He says time and time again, this is good, this is good, you're doing this good, but I have this against you. He's chastising them. Why? Because they have a crack in their armor. And when this catastrophe comes, if that crack is not fixed, it's going to open up a floodgate of evil. Oh, Lord, thank you for your chastisement. Continue your controversy with me all my life. For it is a loving controversy with my sin. You are for me and with me against my sin. You're not against me in my sin. You are for me, loving me, and saying, I must not let him go there. I must not let him keep like that. It is the treasure of the saints. But the psalmist now sees everything awry. Oh, I'm stricken every morning. So this is his outrage. And if you've come to this point, I, I, I really want to urge you now to listen to the rest of the psalm because you're going to see something amazing happen. But we do have to get to the last aspect of this downfall. So we said there's the observation of evil leading to the obsession of evil leading to the outrage. And then we get to the obstacle. He says in verse 16, when I thought how to understand this, because he did want to understand it, he's still fighting. He wants to believe that God's good. When I thought to understand this, it seemed to me a worrisome task. And... Uh, the version that, um, that Stan read, I think, was better. The real sense is, when I tried to understand this with human reason, it just made it more painful. I got more anguish when I tried to reconcile the evil around me, the evil in my country, with the fact that uh, the Scripture tells me that God is good, good, good to His people. Human reason cannot deal with things like that. So, often when, we, when we're in a spiritual downslide, we, we come to a wall. We come to an impasse. And I've seen people in, in, in the pastoral ministry, I, I, I've seen people who are backsliding just hit a wall. And... Um, they're miserable. They're miserable. 
because they've, they've gone through all these stages and their minds have been fixed on the wrong things, on what's not right in their world. And uh, they become outraged at the form of the Christian life. They don't see the love. This is the love of God that's trying to deal with them and bless them. And uh, so then they just come to this, this wall, this obstacle. They can't make sense of anything. So that's the, that's the downfall. Now we need to see how in the world did he make a turn around from that. And the turning point we can see in three parts. The first part is very interesting. We could, we could say, if I give you three words, others, God, what's the third word? I've forgotten. Anyway, it'll come back to me. We'll start with the first word, others. The funny thing is that sometimes when we're spiritually backsliding, the first thing that pulls us out of it is we realize all of a sudden what our behavior is doing to those around us. Notice how he says this. He says in verse 15, if I had said, I will speak thus, I'll tell him all my outrage and all my thoughts, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. So he comes to this place where he suddenly realizes, if I actually say what's inside me right now, if I let outside of me my whole outlook and attitude and what I've become right now and how I think about God and His ways, I will just betray the people of God. And he realizes, oh. And sometimes... That is a first step back because it breaks that selfishness in us where we're only thinking about ourselves. Oh, I don't like the wicked and oh, I'm envious and oh, I would like and oh, I, 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 I. And finally he thought about somebody else. For the first time, there's a mention of somebody else, the children of your, the generation of your children. And so now he's making a turning point. And it's good. Perhaps you need to realize you're sitting there and you need to realize, what has my life become? What am I doing to those around me who need a radiant witness? Who need? I need to be a radiant witness to them. Well, so he, he wakes up, he begins to wake up by thinking of others. And then he goes into the sanctuary Others, God, he goes into the sanctuary of God. He says here in, uh, let me find it again. Verse 17, seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God and then I discerned their need. Notice that he says until he went into the sanctuary, don't think he wasn't going to the temple for all these months when he was downsliding. He was there physically. But he means this time I really went into the sanctuary of God. I came to the end of myself. I, I begin to see what my life is doing to others. And I said to myself, to this time, this Sabbath, when I come into the sanctuary of God, I better come in as a worshiper. And you know what that means? That means I'm coming in and I'm finally saying, I am not God. I've been acting like I'm God and I'm the one to judge how things should be done in the world and in my country. And I've been questioning God and I've been listening to myself, myself, myself. And I need to stop 
listening to myself, and I need to fall down and say, you are the living God, and I shall listen to you. That's the place of a worshiper. I will come back to you, and I will look upon your face, and I will say, oh Lord, show me what I need to know, for I am but a man. And this is what people need to do. Perhaps it's what you've done in the past or need to do now. To come back into the sanctuary of God and whatever your problem is, whatever is making you frustrated and upset and losing a grip on the goodness of God, you need to let it go and you need to come back and say, I am but a man. I fall upon my face in repentance and I come into the sanctuary into the very presence of God to worship and say, what will he then say? And the funny thing is that when we do that, the most surprising thing is said to our souls. God says something we weren't expecting at all. And it solves everything. And that's exactly what happened to him. Look at what he says. And this is the third word that I forgot a moment ago. We read in uh, verse 17, Until I went into the sanctuary of God, and then I discerned their end. Or I'll put it this way, then I discerned their final end. So I would say, others, God, glasses. (laughs) Because now he's going to change glasses. Until now, he's been looking at the evil in his world with what glasses on? What were his glasses? The glasses of worldliness. You know what worldliness is? Worldliness means that I live as if the here and the now is what really counts. All is what really matters. He's looking at the evil and they're so at ease here now. <laughs> they, they've got everything here now. That was his problem. God can't be good because he's not doing such and such here and now. There is an eclipse of heaven in the church in America. An eclipse of heaven. And often in even evangelical circles, it's the Christian life here and now. What's God doing for us here and now? What are the blessings here and now? But he comes to see that this is, no, the only measuring stick, dear people, the only measuring stick to understand the goodness of God is wait until the end of the story. For we are in a fallen, evil, vain world. And it is our doing. And the goodness of God will be fully revealed at the end. But notice what he says. I discern their final end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. What a change of outlook. I just find it amazing. I don't find anyone else in the Psalms that's been so transformed from one point to another. He was so envious and now he says, I had it all wrong. I was completely wrong about the whole show in my country. It's not what what I thought was happening. Actually, this place of power and riches where they can oppress, it's the most slippery place that could be on the face of the earth, spiritually. Put an unregenerate man in the place of riches and power and you put him one foot from hell. You put him one foot from hell. Because there is no reason for him to seek farther than what he has here and now. 
It is such a dangerous place. God can put a godly person in that sort of place, but He gives them special grace. But He says, you've put them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin, how they are destroyed in a moment, swept utter, away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes. So Lord, when You rouse Yourself, You despise them as phantoms. And so we see a complete How could you envy them now? (laughs) You see, nothing has changed. Nothing has changed in the wicked of his country. But he's changed. His outlook is completely different and he sees that he had it all wrong. It's amazing, isn't it? And that's the great hope for any Christian who, who backslides is God in his great grace can do exactly what he did for the psalmist. And he can turn your outlook to the truth and to the light. And you go, how did I ever think like I was thinking then? Well, now the radiant witness. The first thing we notice about him is he's, when, he's, when he's come back to the truth and to the Lord, well, he, he's, he's full of talk about the Lord now. You're going to see it in the verses that we see. But um, the first thing is he sees himself right. He sees his former outlook right. Notice in verse, uh, in verse 21, he says, When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. Oh, Mr. Expert. Mr. Expert in the wicked, who knew everything about them, who looked on all the social media, he says, I was actually completely ignorant. Because with all those facts which were true, I was seeing everything in the wrong perspective about them. Everything. I was seeing me in the wrong perspective and God in the wrong perspective. I was like a brute beast. I was like a savage beast to the Lord God. Wow, that is... That is an amazing way to talk about yourself, isn't it? Before it was, is God really good? And now he realized, no, no, the problem was, I was not good. I was not good. The second thing is that um, he, he sees himself in a totally different light as one blessed by the goodness of God. Now, I'm going, I want to finish by, by just having you notice these three aspects of the goodness of God, which just sort of overwhelm him now. Notice how he describes himself now. He describes himself as graced and guided and one day to be glorified. Here we are. He says in verse 22, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. That's no exaggeration. You hold my right hand. In the French version, we have a better translation. You hold my right hand. just seems like we're we're holding hands. But uh, actually in the French version, it says, Tu m'as saisi par la main droite. So you understand? (laughs) I woke you up at least. It says, you have seized my right hand. You have laid hold on me. He says, even though I was a savage beast, 
Because you've already laid hold upon my right hand, I was still with you even through that time when I was declining. You were with me. I was with you. It's funny that he doesn't say, you're still with me. He said, I'm still with you. It's like the child whose father grabs him when there's a busy street in front of them and the child knows, oop, I ain't going anywhere right now. I'm still with you, Dad. (laughs) I'm uh, continually with you. So, he sees, he sees that he is a man graced, incredibly graced by God. Even when I've gone to the furthest of being a brute beast before God, of not believing him, of being filled with envy, and I've almost apostatized, the truth is, the truth is, nevertheless, and that word means grace, nevertheless, despite the depths of my sin, And if you are a backslidden Christian, I tell you, nevertheless, you are continually with Him. He is continually with you. Peter, Peter, this night you shall deny me three times. Nevertheless, I have prayed for you. And when you return, strengthen your brothers. We are graced people. How many times? God has had to pull me back, pull me back, pull me back from all sorts of backslidings. Yes, even as a missionary. The heart gets cold. The outlook gets jaded. Something happens here and there. And yet, over and over again, nevertheless, nevertheless, nevertheless. Why is it? Because God will not change. God is always God wherever He is. Wherever I am. Whatever I'm doing. He shall not change. And He is full of goodness and grace toward His people. Yea, indeed, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure to heart. He cannot but be good. And so we are graced. And the psalmist has a different outlook. He says, says, you have seized me by the right hand. And the second thing he says, you guide me with your counsel. You guide me with your counsel. And so he sees that God's goodness is shown in our lives that no matter what the evil of America, no matter what the evil of your particular situation, your personal situation, the difficulties you've gone through, the health problems, this and that, whatever it is, there's one thing that's sure. God will guide you by His counsel, by a tender and loving counsel. The one who said... Remember, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His namesake. That Jesus Christ has been made unto us wisdom from God. And the blessedness of the psalmist is not that the situation has changed. Nothing's changed in the situation. But now he sees that I am a man who's walking under the grace of God in this world and God's going to guide me through the world and get me out of it. That's the blessing. The amazing goodness of God. That He will deliver us into another world where righteousness reigns. This is the goodness of God that awaits us. And I like the way in the reading that Stan did that that the Lord says, with weeping they will come with pleas for mercy. I will lead them back I will make them walk by brooks of water in a straight path in which they shall not stumble, for I am a father to Israel. 
That describes your life every day. Every day. And I know there are times when you're confused and when you don't understand. And it was so with the psalmist. But the truth was that God had already planned the way that he was going to guide him out of it and through it. And it's really quite amazing to me how Christians are guided through complicated and difficult and disastrous situations in their lives. And yet through the wisdom of God, they make it through. You have let God has laid his right hand upon you. Whatever you nevertheless, he guides you with his counsel. And third, afterward he shall receive me unto glory. He's, he's going to glorify you one day. You know, right now maybe we we see God as the we praise God. We praise God as the God who gives. And takes away. Don't we? We bless you Lord. The Lord who gives and who takes away. In a fallen world. But one day. He will become the God forever. Who took away. And who gives. He will take away sorrow. And death. And pain. Forever. And he will give in their place. His own dear presence. And peace. And love and joy forevermore. It will be transcendent. We will be amazed that we walk through this Christian life with such foolish ideas of God because when we see Him as He is, we'll say, O Lord, Thou art good and doest good. Oh, how little I understood. Oh, how brutish I was toward You as I walked through this world. The transcendent goodness of the living God. The one who has laid his hand upon me by laying, laying the nails in his own hands. Who's engraven my, hand, my, my name in his palms, says the scripture. Because you see, that's the only way he could lay hold of you. Was to be laid hold of you with, his, with, with your name in his hands. You see the cost of it all? You see the goodness of God in Jesus Christ? who has laid hold of us, who has become wisdom unto salvation to us, Jesus on the cross, enlightening our eyes and showing us who God really is. The good God who comes and saves. Oh, okay. I will love Him forevermore then. And the God who takes the glory. And one day He will say to us, now I am the God who has taken away all evil. And there will only be good. For God is good. Now do you have something to tell? When we come back to this place. When we see despite the evil of our country. Or our situation or our world. We are graced. And guided. And glorified. We must take refuge in the Lord. That we might tell of all his works. We can be radiant witnesses. Because we have something transcendently good to tell people. He is our God. Let's pray. But as for us, O oh God, it is good for us to be near you. We want to confess and to 
tell you, our Creator and our Redeemer, how sorry we are for the many times when we have lost sight that you are good. You are the God of abundant blessing and mercy and, and kindness and tenderness. That this is your very divine nature. That you cannot but be the God of blessing and redemption and salvation who forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. You made all your goodness pass before Moses. And at Calvary, oh, you made all your goodness pass before us. Forgive us then, Lord, for losing sight of your goodness. And we pray that you would help us to be a people who passes through an evil world with wicked in it, knowing that we are graced, laid hold of, guided by your counsel, and glorified by you one day. Give us something to tell to those who so desperately need to know that you are good. Help us then, Lord. And if there are those whose feet are sleeping, slipping even now, we pray especially for them, Lord. Turn them once again to thy goodness. In Jesus' name, amen.